Chapter 87 The Grand Armada Part 2 All whaleboats carry certain curious contrivances, originally invented by the Nantucket Indians, called drugs. Two thick squares of wood of equal size are stoutly clenched together so that they cross each other's grain at right angles. A line of considerable length is then attached to the middle of this block, and the other end of the line being looped It can in a moment be fastened to a harpoon. It is chiefly among gallied whales that this drog is used. For then, more whales are close round you than you can possibly chase at one time. But sperm whales are not every day encountered. While you may, then, you must kill all you can. And if you cannot kill them all at once, you must wing them, so that they can be afterwards killed at your leisure. Hence it is that at times like these the drug comes into requisition. Our boat was furnished with three of them. The first and second were successfully darted, and we saw the whale staggeringly running off, fettered by the enormous sidelong resistance of the towing drug. They were cramped like malefactors with the chain and ball. But upon flinging the third, in the act of tossing overboard the clumsy wooden block, It caught under one of the seats of the boat, and in an instant tore it out and carried it away, dropping the oarsman in the boat's bottom as the seat slid from under him. On both sides the sea came in at the wounded planks, but we stuffed two or three drawers and shirts in, and so stopped the leaks for the time. It had been next to impossible to dart these drugged harpoons, were it not that as we advanced into the herd, our whale's way greatly diminished. Moreover, that as we went still further and further from the circumference of commotion, the direful disorders seemed waning, so that when at last the jerking harpoon drew out and the towing whale sideways vanished, then, with the tapering force of his parting momentum, we glided between two whales into the innermost heart of the shoal, as if from some mountain torrent we'd slid into a serene valley lake. Here the storms and the roaring glens between the outermost whales were heard, but not felt. In the central expanse the sea presented that smooth, satin-like surface, called a sleek, produced by the subtle moisture thrown off by the whale in his more quiet moods. Yes, we were now in that enchanted calm which they say lurks at the heart of every commotion. And still, in the distracted distance, we beheld the tumults of the outer concentric circles and saw successive pods of whales, eight or ten in each, swiftly going round and round, like multiplied spans of horses in a ring, and so closely shoulder to shoulder that a titanic circus rider might easily have overarched the middle ones, and so have gone round on their backs. Owing to the density of the crowd of reposing whales, more immediately surrounding the embayed access of the herd, no possible chance of escape was at present afforded us. We must watch for a breach in the living wall that hemmed us in, the wall that had only admitted us in order to shut us up. Keeping at the center of the lake, we were occasionally visited by small tame cows and calves, the women and children of this routed host. Now, inclusive of the occasional wide intervals between the revolving outer circles, 
and inclusive of the spaces between the various pods in any one of those circles. The entire area at this juncture, embraced by the whole multitude, must have contained at least two or three square miles. At any rate, though indeed such a test at such a time might be deceptive, spoutings might be discovered from our low boat that seemed playing up almost from the rim of the horizon. I mention the circumstance because, as if the cows and calves had been purposely locked up in this innermost fold, and as if the wide extent of the herd had hitherto prevented them from learning the precise cause of its stopping, or possibly being so young, unsophisticated, and every way innocent and inexperienced. However it may have been, these smaller whales now and then visiting our becalmed boat from the margin of the lake evinced a wondrous fearlessness and confidence, or else a still becharmed panic, which it was impossible not to marvel at. Like household dogs, they came snuffing round us, right up to our gunwalls, and touching them, till it almost seemed that some spell had suddenly domesticated them. Queequeg patted their foreheads. Starbuck scratched their backs with his lance, but fearful of the consequences, for the time refrained from darting it. But far beneath this wondrous world upon the surface... Another, and still stranger world, met our eyes as we gazed over the side. For, suspended in those watery vaults, floated the forms of the nursing mothers of the whales, and those that by their enormous girth seemed shortly to become mothers. The lake, as I have hinted, was to a considerable depth exceedingly transparent, and as human infants, while suckling, will calmly and fixedly gaze away from the breast, as if leading two different lives at the time, and while yet drawing mortal nourishment, be still spiritually feasting upon some unearthly reminiscence. Even so did the young of these whales seem looking up towards us, but not at us, as if we were but a bit of gulfweed in their newborn sight. Floating on their sides, the mothers also seemed quietly eyeing us. One of these little infants, that from certain queer tokens seemed hardly a day old, might have measured some fourteen feet in length and some six feet in girth. He was a little frisky, though as yet his body seemed scarce yet recovered from that irksome position it had so lately occupied in the maternal reticule, where, tail to head and all ready for the final spring, the unborn whale lies bent. The delicate side fins and the palms of his flukes still freshly retained the plated, crumpled appearance of a baby's ears newly arrived from foreign parts. "'Line, line!' cried Queequeg, looking over the gunwale. "'Him fast, him fast! Who line him? Who struck? Two whale, one big, one little!' "'What ails ye, man?' cried Starbuck. "'Looky here,' said Queequeg, pointing down." As when the stricken whale that from the tub has reeled out hundreds of fathoms of rope, as after deep sounding, he floats up again and shows the slackened, curling line, buoyantly rising and spiraling towards the air, so now Starbuck saw long coils of the umbilical cord of Madame Leviathan, by which the young cub seemed still tethered to its dam. Not seldom in the rapid vicissitudes of the chase, this natural line, with the maternal end loose, becomes entangled with the hempen one, 
so that the cub is thereby trapped. Some of the subtlest secrets of the seas seem divulged to us in this enchanted pond. We saw a young leviathan amours in the deep. The sperm whale, as with all other species of the leviathan, but unlike most other fish, breeds indifferently at all seasons, after gestation, which may probably be set down at nine months, producing but one at a time, though in some few known instances giving birth to an Isu and Jacob, a contingency provided for in suckling by two teats, curiously situated, one on each side of the anus. But the breasts themselves extend upwards from that, when by chance these precious parts in a nursing whale are cut by the hunter's lance, the mother's pouring milk and blood writhingly discolor the sea for rods. The milk is very sweet and rich. It has been tasted by man. It might well do with strawberries. When overflowing with mutual esteem, the whales salute more ominum. And thus, though surrounded by circle upon circle of consternations and affrights, did these inscrutable creatures at the center freely and fearlessly indulge in all peaceful concernments. Yea, serenely reveled in dalliance and delight. But even so, amid the tornadoed Atlantic of my being, do I myself still forever centrally disport in mute calm, and while ponderous planets of unwanting woe revolve around me, deep down in deep inland, there I still bathe me in eternal mildness of joy. Meanwhile, as we thus lay entranced, the occasional sudden frantic spectacles in the distance evince the activity of the other boats still engaged, in drugging the whales on the frontier of the host, or possibly carrying on the war within the first circle, where abundance of room and some convenient retreats were afforded them. But the sight of the enraged drugged whales now and then blindly darting to and fro across the circles was nothing to what at last met our eyes. It is sometimes the custom, when fast to a whale more than commonly powerful and alert, to seek to hamstring him, as it were, by sundering or maiming his gigantic tail tendon, it is done by darting a short-handled cutting spade, to which is attached a rope for hauling it back again. A whale wounded, as we afterwards learned, in this part, but not effectually, as it seemed, had broken away from the boat, carrying along with him half of the harpoon line, and in the extraordinary agony of the wound he was now dashing among the revolving circles like the lone-mounted desperado Arnold at the Battle of Saratoga, carrying dismay wherever he went. But agonizing, as was the wound of this whale, and an appalling spectacle enough, anyway, yet the peculiar horror with which he seemed to inspire the rest of the herd was owing to a cause which at first the intervening distance obscured from us. But at length we perceived that by one of the unimaginable accidents of the fishery, this whale had become entangled in the harpoon line that he towed. He had also run away with the cutting spade in him, and while the free end of the rope attached to that weapon had permanently caught in the coils of the harpoon line round his tail, the cutting spade itself had worked loose from his flesh. 
so that tormented to madness he was now churning through the water, violently flailing with his flexible tail and tossing the keen spade about him, wounding and murdering his own comrades. This terrific object seemed to recall the whole herd from their stationary fright. First, the whales forming the margin of our lake began to crowd a little and tumble against each other, as if lifted by half-spent billows from afar. Then the lake itself began faintly to heave and swell. The submarine bridal chambers and nurseries vanished. In more and more contracting orbits, the whales in the more central circles began to swim in thickening clusters. Yes, the long calm was departing. A low advancing hum was soon heard, and then, like to the tumultuous masses of block ice, when the great river Hudson breaks up in spring, the entire host of whales came tumbling upon their inner center, as if to pile themselves up in one common mountain. Instantly, Starbuck and Queequeg changed places, Starbuck taking the stern. "'Oars, oars,' he intensely whispered, seizing the helm. "'Grip your oars and clutch your souls now,' My godmen, stand by. Shove him off, you Queequeg, the whale there. Prick him, hit him. Stand up, stand up and say so. Spring men, pull men, never mind their backs. Scrape them, scrape away. The boat was now all but jammed between two vast black bulks, leaving a narrow Dardanelles between their long lengths. But by desperate endeavor, we at last shot into a temporary opening, then giving way rapidly, and at the same time earnestly watching for another outlet. After many similar hairbreadth escapes, we at last swiftly glided into what had just been one of the outer circles, but now crossed by random whales, all violently making for one center. This lucky salvation was cheaply purchased by the loss of Queequeg's hat, who, while standing in the bows to prick the fugitive whales, had his hat taken clean from his head by the air eddy made by the sudden tossing of a pair of broad flukes close by. Riotous and disordered as the universal commotion now was, it soon resolved itself into what seemed a systematic movement. For having clumped together at last in one dense body, they then renewed their onward flight with augmented fleetness. Further pursuit was useless, but the boats still lingered in their wake to pick up what drugged whales might be dropped astern, and likewise to secure one which Flask had killed and wafed. The waif is a penion pole, two or three of which are carried by every boat, and which, when additional game is at hand, are inserted upright into the floating body of a dead whale, both to mark its place on the sea and also as token of prior possession— should the boats of any ship draw near. The result of this lowering was somewhat illustrative of that saying in the fishery, the more whales, the less fish. Of all the drugged whales, only one was captured. The rest contrived to escape for the time, but only to be taken, as will hereafter be seen, by some other craft than the Pequod. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.